Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This is an extra special episode of the Australian Investors Podcast because I'm joined by two investors, Stephen Arnold. How are you going, mate? Very well. Thank you, Owen. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. It's always to chat to you. Delian Etchev. I believe I pronounced that right, Delian. Is that the correct way to pronounce your surname? Enchev, that's it. Yes. Enchev, yeah. Wonderful. It's always a pleasure to chat to you too, mate. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, great to be back. So today we're going to talk about something that's on everyone's mind, particularly global investors. I think Australians become a little bit insular in the fact that we kind of haven't seen inflation for a while and the economy has been ticking over reasonably well. But globally, particularly in the US, there's a lot of concern amongst investors that inflation is kind of coming back and, and it might even bite us in the tail. Stephen, maybe I'll throw it over to you. There's a lot of talk about inflation right now. I think some of the latest readings have kind of caught people by surprise. What do you make of it, I guess? And do you think higher inflation is on the cards, like going out from 2021 and beyond? Well, Owen, you're you're absolutely right. It's very topical. I'm sure the Google Analytics um, would be able to, 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 to map the frequency of searches on inflation and references to inflation in, in various publications. Uh, so it's certainly the hot topic. Um, but I think, think the signals are pretty confusing. On the one hand, we know that oil at about $70 is more than twice a year ago. Iron ore is at historic highs. Uh, we hear about shipping rates. Lumber prices are more than four times what would be considered a, n- a normal level. But there are also uh, lumber prices are about 40% below where they were just a month or so ago. We hear about labour inflation and higher minimum wages. And of course, as unemployment comes down, we hear about companies having to offer higher wages in order to induce employees to, to join them. But we also know that back in 2019, unemployment in many developed countries was at or around historic lows. And then wage inflation was nothing to speak of. So I, I think the I'd say the the signals are pretty mixed, but it's probably important to recognise that the chances of higher inflation are perhaps uh, a little higher than they were a couple of years ago, and and even a little higher than they might have seen a month ago. Do you think that's because of a lot of the the stimulus? Or do you attribute the inflation we're seeing into the readings to stimulus? Well, I think that's certainly having a pretty meaningful impact. We did hear from one of the companies that. Uh, we read about that for an average family of four in America, the amount of stimulus after tax before any unemployment benefits has been about $10,000 in the last year. So there's, and a lot of that's still unspent. Uh, and as people come back to work, uh, they're getting higher regular income. People's confidence about the future, that the likelihood that I've still got a job in a year is much higher than it might have been a year ago. So I think all of those things are contributing to a higher spending you know, as we you know, look into the coming few months. Travel seems to be picking up, both domestic travel and you know, perhaps for some places international travel is looking more on the cards as well and all of those are bigger ticket, bigger ticket purchases. So there's plenty 
that's visible right now and plenty of reasons as we look forward to think that those um, higher spending patterns are going to contribute to more inflation. We're also hearing from central banks that, look, don't worry, uh, it's all temporary. It's going to cycle through and nothing to worry about so that that they spend their days (laughs) thinking about this and that's the the view that they're giving uh, to markets at the moment. Mm. How about you, Delian? I know you're reading up on companies every day, you're hearing from companies. What are some of the, the things that they're seeing or saying? Is there any uh, anecdotes that you have from your research? Yeah, absolutely, Owen. I'd say that uh, inflation is topic of the day and occupying a lot of attention on uh, the company result calls. I'd say it's affecting different companies to different extents. Uh, so, for instance, Steve talked about commodity prices in many cases being higher than they were 12 months ago. Uh, so companies that are reliant on commodity-based inputs like petrochemicals seeing quite meaningful cost inflation. One example of that is the largest maker of paints in the world, uh, Sherwin-Williams, mentioned a few weeks ago they're seeing 10% cost inflation uh, for their products. Another good example is in semiconductors where there's a real shortage of semiconductors and that's as both on the demand side in the last year, uh, you know, everyone's been scrambling to buy a new PC to work from home or a new smartphone. And then on the supply side, it's becoming more and more expensive to make these chips uh, and there have been a few natural disasters that have affected production. So businesses that use semiconductors to make electronics are seeing, uh, you know, tightness and cost inflation there. Uh, but otherwise, for some other businesses, uh, you know, wage inflation still seems quite muted in the US. If you look at the uh, average wages released a few weeks ago, and I think Kroger, which is one of the largest grocers, came out a few weeks ago that uh, they're still only seeing quite low inflation through the business. Hmm. Stephen, I'll throw another one over to you then, because a lot of people think that higher inflation, like to Delian's point there, you know, the supply of uh, semiconductors might push up prices, which might affect purchasing or margins might be squeezed among some companies, you know, and then obviously the, then we start, start thinking about broader implications like interest rates going up. And then we think as investors, we think about the cost of capital and the cost of investing in something. All that leads many investors down this path towards, well, maybe I should take some chips off the table from equities or the share market and maybe park that somewhere safe, in air quotes, safe. How do you think about that? The, the prospect of higher inflation, does that mean that we should be wary of investing in equities? Uh, it's a great point. And I think your flow of logic there, Owen, was spot on about what it means for individual businesses' earnings and what it might mean for how they're valued. Look, I think the short answer is, should we see higher inflation? And of course, uh, we don't know whether we will or not, uh, but we do recognise the risk. And, and if we did, then it'll affect different businesses quite differently. And the vulnerability in terms of how they're valued will be quite different as well. So I think we're quite conscious of those sorts of businesses that are perhaps less differentiated, where should they see commodity inflation or wage inflation uh, that will come at the expense of their earnings and businesses that are perhaps not as competitively strong and, uh, and they might face competitors who can manage it better and they'll lose grounds. And perhaps businesses that are on what one might consider that rich valuation multiples that have been supported by many years of ultra low interest rates, should that reverse, you know, there's certainly a part of the market that one would uh, consider to be very vulnerable to the impact of high inflation on uh, equity valuations. Uh, so I think it becomes more and more important to think about selectivity and conservatism you know, when we're faced with the prospect of high inflation. Mm. You mentioned the the companies that probably have you know the earnings targets long off into the future, currently loss making or you know reliant on kind of external capital survive. But you also mentioned you also touched on a few other points there, and one of the things that I'll throw over to Delian is 
Stephen mentioned this idea around you know being selective, and and he touched on the idea of pricing power. Can you explain what that what that means? And maybe even if you have an example of a company, that would be really interesting. What goes into pricing power, and how are you thinking about that? It's a good question, Owen. It's it's a term that's often tossed around loosely. I think the way that we look at pricing power is if a business experiences rising costs, would they be able to pass that on through to price increases to customers to preserve their profitability? And in general, at Aorus, we want to own high quality market leading businesses with strong pricing power, especially businesses that actually provide more value to their clients over time that they can price for rather than just you know providing the same product or service at a higher price to clients. And uh, obviously, in an inflationary environment, pricing power is is key. Mm. And how do you think about that? Like in terms of, is it just through your, quali- your deep qualitative research? I know we've talked about that before. Is that how you kind of get that insight? Sure. Many of the businesses we follow, they they talk to their pricing strategy. Uh, you know, in some cases, there's uh, a regular cadence of pricing increases. A good example of that in our portfolio is uh, Moody's, which is you know, a household name. It's one of the two dominant credit rating agencies uh, with S&P being the other. And uh, basically what they do is issuers of debt can pay Moody's to write research and issue a, a credit rating on their bonds. And then on the other side, because debt investors trust the Moody's rating, the cost of debt for the issuer can be meaningfully lower if it has the Moody's rating than if it doesn't. And uh, the value they provide to customers is very high and very quantifiable in the reduced interest costs. And every year, Moody's will increase the price of the rating by around 4%, so slightly in excess of inflation. And we think they have strong pricing power for many years to come. I was just going to jump in there. I was going to say that Please. in an inflationary environment, getting a lower cost of debt is probably, you know, that's probably a two-pronged you know, benefit for the companies, right? Like that's like a really strong advantage, in, in, particularly in this market, if you look forward. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. And actually... Moody's is a very unique business where they get paid based on the value of debt that's being rated by them. And if you think about the value of debt, that tends to grow with inflation. Uh, you know, if you needed to raise $100 of capital to invest in your business today, well, maybe you need to invest uh, $105 of capital to make the same investment next year. Uh, and Moody's get paid on the higher value of nominal debt. So they basically get two layers of inflation on the business. They earn based on GDP, uh, real GDP plus inflation to get to nominal GDP, uh, and then plus you know the pricing that they're putting through 4% every year. So it's, it's a very inflation-resistant business. Hmm. That's a fascinating example for this type of conversation, and in particular, pricing power. Uh, oh, and just following up on the interesting point Delian made about pricing power being supported by additional value to customers, an interesting contrary point is to think about the pay television industry pre-Netflix. And I think if we go back uh, 10 years or so, People might have looked at that as an industry with really robust, strong pricing power because prices went up and caught 10% every year if you're a Comcast subscriber in the US or a Foxtel subscriber in Australia because consumers had very little choice. But that's not the sort of pricing power that we want to own because in both of those examples, consumers weren't actually getting more channels. They weren't getting more less ads, certainly in the United States. And every year they became a little, little bit less, less happy and more dissatisfied. In fact, the consistently through the 90s and 2000s, paid television was the least liked industry by consumers in the US of any any industry. But prices went up every year and along comes Netflix and you have a lot of unhappy customers looking for an alternative. Uh, so we want durable pricing power uh, and that means you're providing customers a bit more value every year uh, so they feel like they're getting a, a good deal and that underwrites durable pricing power. Hmm. 
I think that's a great um, anecdote. I think that demonstrates the importance of, I guess, what you lose by flexing that muscle. It's right. It can be short-term gratifying, but long-term destructive. Great. Just also on pricing power, are there any other companies in the portfolio, the AORS portfolio, that you think can use their pricing power in an inflationary environment? Yes, and I think this is uh, where you know, we lean on durability and the evidence of history and in, in, in the value of AORS looking at businesses that have been around for decades um, because then we don't have to imagine how they can manage their business in an inflationary environment. We can go back and test it. One other example might be Accenture uh, in their services business. If they're able to provide richer and richer IP-based services and solutions to their clients this year and next year. Uh, they hire, they hire people that provide the relevant skill sets uh, that enable them to do that. And you know, because, you know, to Delian's point, what they're providing is a little bit more valuable every year. Yeah, that really underpins their pricing power, their ability to charge for it. Um, and that's very different from uh, someone who's trying to charge more for the same product every year. And I, I think that's um, far more tenuous in their sort of businesses that I think one would want to avoid if we were concerned about rising inflation. Yeah, we, we spoke, you and I spoke previously about Accenture and we went into great depth about what the business does. So I'll refer people back to that conversation if you want to get Stephen's overview of the business and the opportunity. And it, it's basically business as usual, nothing's really changed. Um, Stephen, staying with you then, we might go to the other side of the ledger. So we just talked about pricing power and kind of passing that cost on. But also in this environment, Delian mentioned that, you know, input costs, like uh, say commodities rising, can have a consequence on some of these businesses um, because they've got to make a decision. And I think one of the other areas that you've identified is kind of cost efficiencies in that economy of scale, I guess, is businesses that are able to use that size, the sheer size and, and the volume of their business to withstand inflationary pressure. So maybe if you want to explain how you think about cost efficiencies in this environment, and then maybe give us some examples as well. Uh, you're happy to do so. I think that's the other, or the second dimension of where you want to be selective in equity investing in an inflationary environment. And what we're looking for here is businesses that have institutionalized everyday cost efficiencies. And what we draw the contrast with is the businesses that once every cycle, they work out, actually, we're a bit behind the curve here and we've got a cost problem. Let's let's embark on a really radical restructuring program, you know, sack a lot of the workforce, and that can be quite damaging as they try and uh, catch up and doing what they do in a year that they should have been doing over the last 10 years. So let me give you two examples. One business is Graco. Uh, they make highly engineered industrial pumps and fluid handling equipment uh, based in Minneapolis uh, on the Great, Great Lakes. And what they're looking for every year from their business is to create uh, what they call factory floor efficiency uh, that equals inflation. And so if it's costing them to uh, the, the wage costs and power costs and costs of producing their tools uh, and so on, is rising at 3%. They're looking for uh, 3% productivity uh, to basically offset that. And they've got a very good record of doing that. And that might come from uh, retraining staff to get a bit more productive. It might be introducing more modern equipment that can be more productive. Um, but through a whole combination of measures, they're looking for productivity every year to offset inflation. And they've got a great record of doing that. The second example is that, as you alluded to, businesses with huge purchasing scale, and it's hard to think of a better one than Costco, um, the one of the world's largest retailers. And it's not just the, the dollar value of their sales there, it's because they only stock 3,700 items on a shelf, which compares to more than 100,000 for Walmart, they focus their purchasing scale around uh, fewer products, uh, which gives them great muscle. They've got a very sophisticated 
supply chain. So if they need to find an alternate supplier uh, in the event of inflation to find a better deal for their members and their customers, uh, they can do that. And thirdly, about a third of the sales are under their own private label, which they call Kirkland, uh, which their customers love. Um, And that gives them um, another layer of ability to defray purchasing because it goes under their own brand. Um, so Costco's huge purchasing muscle, you know, their sophistication of their supply chain and their focus around fewer products gives them a lot of ability to defray and manage inflation. Now, I would hasten to add that Costco knows that their, their members and customers come to them for value. And so they said only a few weeks ago to investors, look, where there's inflation will be the last to raise and first to cut. So customers know that they come to us for value. So they're they're not in a hurry to raise prices. They'll do it. But what they're going to lean on is their suppliers to create efficiencies. And uh, they've got a great record of doing that through many, many years. Just thinking from the perspective of a consumer at Costco, uh, we've seen, you know, the toilet paper runs, no pun intended, where you you see massive forward purchasing of toilet paper. And I couldn't think of a better place to go shopping than somewhere like Costco. If you're buying in bulk, right, you know, that's where you would go. I assume. Well, that, that's right. And I often describe it, people go around these huge aisles with SUV-sized uh, shopping trolleys um, and then go out to their American-sized SUV in the car park with $2,000 worth of Costco goodies. Uh, so look, they certainly saw a lot of demand and won a lot of market share last year. Right now, I think the pattern of consumer spending is shifting a little bit. People are doing less pantry stocking uh, and they might be booking holidays uh, and Costco, would you believe, is one of America's largest travel agents. Uh, they might be filling up their car because they're going to go on a summer holiday. Costco sells more gas in America than anybody else, uh, pretty much. They might decide that you know we need some more consumer electronics because we've got those stimulus checks we talked about earlier. So they're balanced across selling many, many things, positions them well uh, as the mix of consumer spending changes, but their ongoing value proposition you know, combined with their ability to manage inflation gives us great confidence that not only will they have a great year this year, uh, but many, many more years ahead. Mm. Oh, sorry, go on, Delian. One of my favorite anecdotes uh, with Costco, Owen, is uh, and really speaks to their ability to manage increase in costs. They've managed to keep the price of their $2 hot dog and drink combo at $2 for over 30 years. <laughs> That's great. I love the way Costco makes you feel when you go into the stores. To, to Steve's point about electronics, the first thing you typically see when you go into a, a Costco store is the beautiful TVs and the electronics and those higher end products that you just want to purchase. So yeah, just make just thinking about it makes me want to go back there. But um, Delian, you're an analyst, obviously, each day you're looking at companies, you're studying financials, you're, you're reading through 10Ks and what have you. One of the things that people think about in an inflationary environment is the cost of capital, right? For a business, as analysts, we think this company has debt. What impact might that have if interest rates go up or if they need to get external funding again? Can you talk a bit about how you think about, I guess, balance sheet strength and the capital structure of businesses in this environment with really low rates and this kind of idea around looming inflation? Yeah, of course. To your point, Owen, uh, one of our portfolio companies, actually LVMH, they acquired the jewellery business Tiffany last year uh, with an all-in cost of debt of 0.4% for a large multi-billion dollar deal. So that's obviously a very simple relationship where all companies would pay a higher interest rate on their debt You know, if interest rates were to rise. But the effect would be felt more strongly on those with higher ratios of, of debt to earnings. And uh, I think there's a secondary impact where if higher inflation and higher rates also creates instability in capital markets, then uh, you know some less less successful, uh, more distressed businesses will face difficulty in refinancing and issuing their debt. 
uh, which could compound some of their issues. And uh, I think you might have had a chat with with Stephen uh, a few weeks back on L'Oreal. Their two largest competitors, Coty and Revlon, are highly distressed uh, companies. And I think that really played into L'Oreal's hands through last year in being able to continue investing in the business in a time of stress. Hmm. That's really interesting. So maybe I'll direct this one at you, Steve. Do you and the team, when you look at that competitive environment, do you think about the capital structure of the business that you like versus those of competitors as kind of like a, a way to get insight into who has that resilience? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's, re- it's resilience um, and it's also optionality. For a business like L'Oreal or LVMH, a strong capital structure allows them to make investment choices that their less well-financed peers cannot do. It might be an acquisition. It might be to repurchase shares when they're attractively priced. It might be just to dial up investment in the business. But it's good to have that headroom and the ability to make choices um, because you don't know when that those options are going to come along. Um, but businesses like Delian mentioned, they simply don't have those choices. Uh, they can't invest behind their brands. They can't put cool new products in the shelf and create excitement for their retail suppliers and they're going backwards and that becomes a trend that's hard to reverse uh, and it gives the business like L'Oreal the ability to you know, you know, take share from less well-financed competitors and you know, we'll see that across many of the types of businesses that we own and, and when we look at their peers, you know, we, we want to own um, the leading businesses and part of what makes them the sorts of business that end up in our portfolio is the conservative capital structure and, and the optionality and the headroom and the ability to withstand difficult environments that that provides. Mm. I think that's a really interesting, this, this conversation is a really interesting framework for people to work towards. So let's just, let's just step through them. Let's think about them again in summary. We've got pricing power. So asking if your company has pricing power and where does that come from? Do you have, uh, I guess, a demonstrable track record? The second is cost efficiency. So that scale, you know, Stephen talked to Costco there as a really good example, or even Graco, which is deeply embedded in the kind of the manufacturing and the, I guess the workflows of its clients. And then uh, Delian spoke to the balance sheet strength and just making sure that companies are able to kind of have that optionality, as Stephen mentioned, and really assess your companies relative to other companies as well. I think that's a really interesting takeaway from this conversation. Gents, I know that you've got the, the full portfolio on display on the website, Aora, so I'll put some links in there. If you haven't already looked at it, you know, Steve, Delian and the team are writing their thoughts you know, every, every so often. So go on there and have a look at the, the latest quarterlies or monthlies. Stephen, as always, mate, thanks for, for taking the time to join me today. An absolute pleasure, Owen, and uh, a really interesting discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Delian, second time round, mate. I, I hope it wasn't too, too difficult for you this time. <laughs> no, it was great chatting with you again, Owen. Thank you. Thanks for your time. 